0: Chapter 1 Is Willpower More Than the Metaphor? Sometimes we are devils to ourselves when we will tempt the frailty of our powers, presuming on their changeful potency. Troilus, in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida. If you have a casual acquaintance with Amanda Palmer's music, if you know about her Band in Britain abortion song, or the backstabber video of her running down a hall naked holding an upraised knife while chasing the equally naked guy in lipstick who was just in bed with her, you probably don't think of her as a paragon of self-control. She has been described in a lot of ways. An edgier Lady Gaga, a funnier Madonna, a gender-bending provocateur, the high priestess of Brechtian punk cabaret. But the words Victorian and repressed generally don't come up. Her persona is Dionysian. When she accepted a marriage proposal from Neil Gaiman, the British fantasy novelist, Palmer's idea of a formal announcement was a morning-after confession on Twitter that she might have gotten engaged, but also might have been drunk. Yet an undisciplined artist could never have written so much music or sold out so many concerts around the world. Palmer couldn't have gotten to Radio City Music Hall without practicing. It took self-control to create her uncontrolled persona, and she credits her success partly to what she calls the ultimate Zen training ground, posing as a living statue. She performed in the street for six years and started a company hiring out living statues for corporate gigs, like holding platters of organic produce at the opening of a Whole Foods supermarket. Palmer took up this calling in 1998, when she was 22 and living in her hometown, Boston. She made videos describing herself as an aspiring rock star. But that occupation didn't pay the rent, so she went into Harvard Square and introduced a form of street theater she'd seen in Germany. She called herself the Eight-Foot Bride. With her face painted white, wearing a formal wedding dress and a veil, holding a bouquet in her formal white gloves, she would stand on top of a box, If someone put money in her tips basket, she would hand the person a flower. But otherwise, she remained utterly motionless. Some people would insult her or throw things at her. They tried to make her laugh. They grabbed her. Some yelled at her to get a real job and threatened to steal her money. Drunks tried to pull her down off the pedestal or to tip her over. It was not pretty, Palmer recalls. Once I had a frat boy rub his head drunkenly in my crotch as I looked skyward thinking, good lord, what have I done to deserve this? But in six years, I broke character maybe twice. You literally don't react. You don't even flinch. You just let it pass through you. The crowds would marvel at her stamina, and people routinely assumed it must be grueling to hold the body in a rigid pose for so long. But Palmer didn't find it a strain on her muscles. She realized there was a physical aspect to the task, She learned not to drink coffee, for instance, because it produced a slight but uncontrollable quiver in her body. But the challenge seemed to be mainly in her mind. Standing still isn't really that difficult, she says. The discipline in being a living statue was much more in the non-reactivity department. I couldn't move my eyes, so I couldn't look at interesting, intriguing things that were passing me by. I couldn't engage with people who were trying to engage me. I couldn't laugh. I couldn't wipe my nose if a piece of snot started to dribble down my upper lip. I couldn't scratch my ear if I had an itch. If a mosquito landed on my cheek, I couldn't swat at it. Those were the real challenges. But even though the challenge was mental, she also noticed that it eventually took a physical toll. As much as she liked the money, usually about $50 an hour, she found she couldn't do it for long. She would typically work for 90 minutes, take an hour break, Get back on the box for another 90 minutes, then call it a day. Sometimes, on a Saturday in peak tourist season, she would supplement her street work by going to a Renaissance festival and posing as a wood nymph for a few hours. But it left her exhausted. I'd get home barely alive, barely able to feel my body, she says. I would put myself into the bathtub and my brain would be completely blank. Why? She hadn't been expending energy to move her muscles. She hadn't been breathing harder. Her heart hadn't been beating faster. What was so hard about doing nothing? She would have said that she'd been exercising willpower to resist temptation, but that folk concept from the 19th century had been mostly abandoned by modern experts. What would it even mean to say that a person was exercising willpower? How could it be shown to be anything more than a metaphor? The answer, as it turned out, was to start with warm cookies. The Radish Experiment Sometimes social scientists have to be a little cruel with their experiments. When the college students walked into Baumeister's laboratory, they were already hungry because they'd been fasting, and now they were in a room suffused with the aroma of chocolate chip cookies that had just been baked in the lab the experimental subjects sat down at a table with several culinary choices, the warm cookies, some pieces of chocolate, and a bowl of radishes. Some students were invited to eat the cookies and candy. The unlucky ones were assigned to the radish condition. No treats, just raw radishes. To maximize temptation, the researchers left the students alone with the radishes and the cookies and observed them through a small hidden window. The ones in the radish condition clearly struggled with the temptation. Many gazed longingly at the cookies before settling down to bite reluctantly into a radish. Some of them picked up a cookie and smelled it, savoring the pleasure of freshly baked chocolate. A couple accidentally dropped a cookie on the floor and then hastened to put it back in the bowl so no one would know of their flirtation with sin. But nobody actually bit into the forbidden food. The temptation was always resisted, if, in some cases, by the narrowest of margins. All this was to the good, in terms of the experiment. It showed that the cookies were really quite tempting, and that people needed to summon up their willpower to resist them. Then the students were taken to another room and given geometry puzzles to work on. The students thought they were being tested for cleverness, although, in fact, the puzzles were unsolvable. The test was to see how long they'd work before giving up. This has been a standard technique that stress researchers and others have used for decades because it's a reliable indicator of overall perseverance. Other research has shown that someone who keeps trying one of these unsolvable puzzles will also work longer at tasks that are actually doable. The students who'd been allowed to eat chocolate chip cookies and candy typically worked on the puzzle for about 20 minutes as did a control group of students who were also hungry but hadn't been offered food of any kind. The sorely tempted radish-eaters, though, gave up in just eight minutes, a huge difference by the standards of laboratory experiments. They'd successfully resisted the temptation of the cookies and the chocolates, but the effort left them with less energy to tackle the puzzles. The old folk wisdom about willpower appeared to be correct after all, unlike the newer and fancier psychological theories of the self. Willpower looked like much more than a metaphor. It seemed to be like a muscle that could be fatigued through use, just as Shakespeare had recognized in Troilus and Cressida. The Trojan warrior, Troilus, convinced that Cressida will be tempted, most cunningly, by the charms of Greek suitors, tells her that he trusts her desire to remain faithful, but is worried that she will yield under strain. It's folly to presume that our power of resolution is constant, he explains to her, and warns of what happens when it becomes frail. Something will be done that we will not. Sure enough, Cressida falls for a Greek warrior. When Troilus speaks of the changeful potency of willpower, he's describing the sort of fluctuations observed in the students tempted by the cookies. After this concept was identified in the radish study and other experiments, it made immediate sense to clinical psychologists like Don Baucom, a veteran marital therapist in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He said the Baumeister research crystallized something that he had sensed in his practice for years, but never fully understood. He'd seen many marriages suffer because the two career couples fought over seemingly trivial issues every evening. He sometimes advised them to go home from work early, which might sound like odd advice. Why give them more time to fight with each other? but he suspected that the long hours at work were draining them. When they got home after a long, hard day, they had nothing left to help them overlook their partner's annoying habits, or to be kind and considerate out of the blue, or to hold their tongue when their partner said something that made them want to respond in a mean, sarcastic manner. Balcom recognized that they needed to leave work while they still had some energy. He saw why marriages were going bad just when stress at work was at its worst. People were using up all their willpower on the job. They gave it the office, and their home suffered the consequences. After the Radish experiment, similar results were observed over and over again in different groups of subjects. Researchers looked for more complex emotional effects and for other ways to measure them, like observing people's physical stamina. A sustained exercise like running a marathon takes more than just conditioning. No matter how fit you are, at some point, your body wants to rest, and your mind has to tell it to run, run, run. Similarly, it takes more than just physical strength to grip a hand exerciser and keep squeezing it against the force of the spring. After a short time, the hand grows tired and then gradually starts to feel muscle pain. The natural impulse is to relax but you can will yourself to keep squeezing unless your mind has been too busy suppressing other feelings, as in an experiment involving a sad Italian film. Before watching the movie, the subjects were told that their facial expressions would be recorded by a camera as they watched the movie. Some people were asked to suppress their feelings and show no emotions. Others were asked to amplify their emotional reactions so that their facial expressions would reveal their feelings a third group, the control condition, got to watch the movie normally. Everyone then watched an excerpt from the movie Mondokane, A Dog's World, a documentary about the effects of nuclear waste on wildlife. One memorable sequence showed giant sea turtles losing their sense of direction, wandering into the desert and pathetically dying as they flapped their flippers aimlessly and feebly, unable to find the sea. It was, unquestionably, a tearjerker. But not everyone was allowed to cry. Some remained stoic, as instructed. Some deliberately let the waterworks flow as much as possible. Afterward, they all took the stamina test by squeezing the hand exerciser, and researchers compared the results. The movie had no effect on the stamina of the control group. The people squeezed the handles just as long as they had in the test before the film. But the other two groups quit much sooner, and it didn't matter whether they had been suppressing their feelings or venting their grief over the poor turtles. Either way, the effort to control their emotional reactions depleted their willpower. Faking it didn't come free. Neither did a classic mental exercise, the White Bear Challenge. The White Bear has been something of a mascot for psychologists Ever since Dan Wegner heard the legend about how the young Tolstoy, or depending on the virgin, the young Dostoevsky, bet that his younger brother couldn't go five minutes without thinking about a white bear. The brother had to pay up, having made a disconcerting discovery about human mental powers. We like to think we control our thoughts, but we don't. First-time meditators are typically shocked at how their minds wander over and over despite earnest attempts to focus and concentrate. At best, we have partial control over our streams of thought, as Wegner, who is now at Harvard, demonstrated by asking people to ring a bell whenever a white bear intruded on their thoughts. Some tricks and distraction techniques and incentives could briefly keep the creature at bay, he found, but eventually, the bell tolled for everyone. This sort of experiment might sound frivolous, Of all the traumas and psychoses affecting humans, unwanted, white, bear thoughts doesn't rank very high. Yet that distance from everyday life is precisely what makes it a useful tool to researchers. To understand how well people control their thoughts, it's best not to pick ordinary thoughts. When a graduate student tried a version of Wegner's experiment in which people were told not to think about their mothers, the experiment failed in its purpose and serve to demonstrate only that college students are remarkably skilled at not thinking about their mothers. What makes mom different from a white bear? Perhaps the students are trying to separate themselves emotionally from their parents. Perhaps they often want to do things that their mothers would disapprove of, and so they need to put mom out of their minds. Or perhaps they wish to avoid feeling guilty for not calling their mother as often as she would like. But notice that all these possible explanations for the difference between mom and the white bear are things about mom. That's exactly the problem, at least as a researcher would see it. Mothers are not good topics for pure research because there is so much baggage, so many mental and emotional associations. The reasons you do or don't think about your mother are many, variable, and highly specific, so they would not easily generalize. In contrast, If people have trouble suppressing thoughts of white bears, creatures that presumably play essentially no role in the daily life or personal history of the average American college student and research participant, then the explanation is likely to apply to a wide range of topics. For all those reasons, the white bear appealed to self-control researchers studying how people manage their thoughts. Sure enough, after people spent a few minutes trying not to think of a white bear They gave up sooner on puzzles, compared with people who'd been free to ponder anything. They also had a harder time controlling their feelings in another slightly cruel experiment, being forced to remain stoic while watching classic skits from Saturday Night Live and a Robin Williams stand-up routine. The audience's facial reactions were recorded and later systematically coded by researchers. Once again, the effects were obvious on the people who'd earlier done the white bear exercise. They couldn't resist giggling or at least smiling when Williams went into one of his riffs. You might keep that result in mind if you have a boss prone to making idiotic suggestions. To avoid smirking at the next meeting, refrain from any strenuous mental exercise beforehand. And feel free to think about all the white bears you want. Name that feeling. Once the experiments showed that willpower existed, psychologists and neuroscientists had a new set of questions. Exactly what was willpower? Which part of the brain was involved? What was happening in the neural circuits? What other physical changes were taking place? What did it feel like when willpower ebbed? The most immediate question was what to call this process, something more precise than changeful potency or weak will, or the devil made me do it. The recent scientific literature didn't offer much help. Baumeister had to go all the way back to Freud to find a model of the self that incorporated concepts of energy. Freud's ideas, as usual, turned out to be both remarkably prescient and utterly wrong. He theorized that humans use a process called sublimation to convert energy from its basic instinctual sources into more socially approved ones. Thus, Freud posited, great artists channel their sexual energy into their work. It was clever speculation, but the energy model of the self didn't catch on with psychologists in the 20th century, and neither did the specific theory about the sublimation mechanism. When Baumeister and colleagues tested a list of Freud's theoretical mechanisms against the modern research literature, they found that sublimation fared the worst of all, There was, essentially, no evidence for it, and lots of reasons to think the opposite was true. For example, if the theory of sublimation was correct, then artists' colonies should be full of people sublimating their erotic urges, and therefore there should be relatively little sexual activity. Have you ever heard of an artist colony known for its lack of sex? Still, Freud was onto something with his energy model of the self, Energy is an essential element in explaining the liaisons at artists' colonies. Restraining sexual impulses takes energy, and so does creative work. If you pour energy into your art, you have less available to restrain your libido. Freud had been a bit vague about where this energy came from and how it operated, but at least he had assigned it an important place in his theory of self. As a kind of homage to Freud's insights in this direction, Baumeister elected to use Freud's term for the self, ego. Thus was born ego-depletion, Baumeister's term for describing people's diminished capacity to regulate their thoughts, feelings, and actions. People can sometimes overcome mental fatigue, but Baumeister found that if they had used up energy by exerting willpower or by making decisions, another form of ego-depletion that we'll discuss later, they would eventually succumb. This term would later appear in thousands of scientific papers as psychologists came to understand the usefulness of ego depletion for explaining a wide assortment of behaviors. How ego depletion occurs inside the brain, initially a mystery, became clearer when two researchers at the University of Toronto, Michael Inslicht and Jennifer Gutzel, observed people who were wearing a cap that covered the skull with a dense network of electrodes and wires. This method, called electroencephalographic recording, EEG, enables scientists to detect electrical activity inside the brain. It can't exactly read someone's mind, but it can help map out how the brain deals with various problems. The Toronto researchers paid special attention to the brain region known as the anterior cingulate cortex, which watches for mismatches between what you were doing and what you intended to do. It's commonly known as the conflict monitoring system, or the error detection system. This is the part of the brain that sounds the alarm if, say, you're holding a hamburger in one hand and a cell phone in the other, and you start to take a bite out of the cell phone. The alarm inside the brain is a spike in electrical activity called event-related negativity. With their skulls wired, the people in Toronto watched some upsetting clips from documentaries showing animals suffering and dying. Half the people were told to stifle their emotional reactions, thereby putting themselves into a state of ego depletion. The rest simply watched the movies carefully. Then everyone went on to a second, ostensibly unrelated activity, the classic Stroop task, named after psychologist James Stroop, requiring them to say what colors some letters are printed in. For example, a row of XXXs might appear in red, and the correct response would be red, which is easy enough. But if the word green is printed in red ink, it takes extra effort. You have to override the first thought occasioned by reading the letters green and force yourself to identify the color of the ink, red. Many studies have shown that people are slower to answer under these circumstances. In fact, the Stroop task became a tool for American intelligence officials during the Cold War. A covert agent could claim not to speak Russian but he'd take longer to answer correctly when looking at Russian words for colors. Picking the right color proved to be especially difficult for the people in the Toronto experiment who had already depleted their willpower during the sad animal movie. They took longer to respond and made more mistakes. The wires attached to their skulls revealed notably sluggish activity in the conflict monitoring system of the brain. The alarm signals for mismatches were weaker. The results showed that ego depletion causes a slowdown in the anterior cingulate cortex, the brain area that's crucial to self-control. As the brain slows down and its error detection ability deteriorates, people have trouble controlling their reactions. They must struggle to accomplish tasks that would get done much more easily if the ego weren't depleted. That ego depletion results in slower brain circuitry is fascinating to neuroscientists. But for the rest of us, it would be more useful to detect ego depletion without covering your skull with wires and electrodes. What are the noticeable symptoms? Something to warn you that your brain is not primed for control before you get into a fight with your partner or polish off the cord of haagen Until recently, researchers couldn't offer much help. In dozens of studies, they looked unsuccessfully for telltale emotional reactions, turning up either contradictory results or nothing at all. Being depleted didn't seem to consistently make people feel depressed or angry or discontented. In 2010, when an international team of researchers combed through the results of more than 80 studies, they concluded that ego depletion's effects on behavior were strong, large, and reliable, but that the effects on subjective feelings were considerably weaker. People in depleted condition reported more fatigue and tiredness and negative emotions, but even those differences weren't large. The results made ego depletion seem like an illness with no symptoms, a condition that didn't feel like anything. But now it turns out that there are signals of ego depletion, thanks to some new experiments by Baumeister and a team headed by his longtime collaborator, Kathleen Voss, a psychologist at the University of Minnesota. In these experiments, while depleted persons, once again, didn't show any single telltale emotion, they did react more strongly to all kinds of things. A sad movie made them extra sad. Joyous pictures made them happier. And disturbing pictures made them more frightened and upset. Ice-cold water felt more painful to them than it did to people who were not ego-depleted. Desires intensified along with feelings. After eating a cookie, the people reported a stronger craving to eat another cookie. And they did, in fact, eat more cookies when given a chance. When looking at a gift-wrapped package, they felt an especially strong desire to open it. So if you'd like some advance warning of trouble, look not for a single symptom, but rather for a change in the overall intensity of your feelings. If you find yourself especially bothered by frustrating events, or saddened by unpleasant thoughts, or even happier about some good news, then maybe it's because your brain circuits aren't controlling emotions as well as usual. Now, intense feelings can be quite pleasurable and are an essential part of life, and we're not suggesting that you strive for emotional monotony, unless you aspire to Mr. Spock's Vulcan Calm, but be aware of what these feelings can mean. If you're trying to resist temptation, you may find yourself feeling the forbidden desires more strongly just when your ability to resist them is down. Ego depletion thus creates a double whammy. Your willpower is diminished and your cravings feel stronger than ever. The problem can be particularly acute for people struggling with addiction. Researchers have long noticed that cravings are especially strong during withdrawal. More recently, they've noticed that lots of other feelings intensify during withdrawal. During withdrawal, the recovering addict is using so much willpower to break the habit that it's likely to be a time of intense, prolonged ego depletion, and that very state will make the person feel the desire for the drug all the more strongly. Moreover, other events will also have an unusually strong impact, causing extra distress and creating further yearnings for the cigarette or drink or drug. It's no wonder relapses are so common and addicts feel so weird when they quit. Long before psychologists identified ego depletion, the British humorist Sir A.P. Herbert nicely described the conflicting set of symptoms. Thank heaven I've given up smoking again, he announced. God, I feel fit. Homicidal, but fit. A different man. Irritable, moody, depressed, rude, nervy, perhaps. But the lungs are fine.